0: Okay, so this is going to be part five of the series that we began a couple of weeks ago, wherein we're trying to do an honest investigation of the Torah, and we say Torah would mean written and oral Torah, Mm -hmm. to examine a little bit of the evidence to see um, for ourselves answers to a very important question, and that is, who's the author? Uh, Like I've said before, I'll say it again, it's a question of vital importance to us to know who authored the Torah If it's the Word of God, then it is not up to us to amend it. We don't have the ability to impose upon the Torah what we want it to say. We are beholden to it. Uh, And also, it's remarkable to think that if the Torah is indeed divine, like I believe it is, and we've demonstrated previous weeks, then we actually have the instructions of how to maximize our life and our experience here from the creator of heaven and earth and so the creator of us the creator of the world around us it's just incredible just to think about that we have instructions from the original manufacturer not third party the original manufacturer of this universe and of us we have instructions as to what it is we should do with our lives uh, and conversely if like some people mistakenly and erroneously think, if the Torah is a product of man, then we, the first thing we should do is discard it, because it's going to muddle with our uh, journey and our approach and interest in, try to, in trying to have um, a maximum experience in life. So I want to go through some of, in, in detail, some of the um, pieces of evidence a little bit we touched on in previous weeks, but also we're, we're going to go further into looking at some of what's called the Oral Torah, which again we have to dispel some misconceptions. It's not some sort of body that was invented by rabbis; rather, it's part of the original Torah. Together, they're 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 inextricably linked, and we're going to examine some statements that were told in the Oral Torah as well, and we'll find uh, a common. A common theme, a common trend wherein there are things there that are just remarkable that the authors knew so long ago. Okay, so we read in Genesis, this is when Abraham and the Almighty are making their pact. So if you read the stories, there's several times where Abraham has prophecy and he's told, your children are going to be an eternal nation, and it's going to be wonderful, you have the line of Israel, and you have the mitzvahs, and etc. But this is a verse that really sets... Uh, a, a high standard of what the Jewish people are going to be. Quote, and I sta- and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout the generations, an eternal covenant to be your God and and the God of your descendants after you. We're told will be around forever. We're going to have a special relationship between us and the Almighty, not from, from beginning with Abraham going to his descendants all the way to us. What happens if the Jewish people cease to exist? Then this prophecy, this prediction is proved false. If this prediction is proved false, then, of course, we know it's not from God because God makes predictions that are accurate. Okay, so we see, and as far as we know, you know, till this day, we're around. We're still here. We're still, we're in a Jewish community center of sorts, and we're studying Torah. So that part's been true. Uh, additionally, we told Leviticus, and of course, there's many other examples. I'm just picking out a few. Uh, now this is going, the way. even when things go bad for the Jewish people, the Mighty is not going to destroy us. Yet even so, even while they are in their enemy's land, when we're in our enemy's land, which of course, as we know throughout history, is something that we did quite often, I will not reject or spurn them, lest by wiping them out I may void my covenant with them. So the mighty is saying, if I destroy them when they're in the foreign land, then I am encroaching and infringing my commitment I made to Abraham. I told Abraham, the people are going to be around forever. And if I destroy them, well, I'm going against my word. Uh, For I am their God, I will remember them because of the covenant I made with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, under the very eyes of the Gentiles, so that I might be their God. So we're told, very clear in the Torah, this is two examples, there's many other examples, certainly if you look at the books of the prophets as well, even though it's not quite our subject right now, you'll find many examples of the fact that we are predicted to be in a a total nation. Now, to be in a total nation in itself is not such a well, it's still a rare phenomenon. Out of all the nations in history that have lived, it's kind of rare because nations come and go. Even empires that are very mighty and span a tremendous amount of of land and territory and resources and influence, they usually peat and then they start to to you know to recede. Uh, but the idea of of a, of a nation that's been around for as long as history can remember is in itself is, is fairly unique. But it's not we're not the only ones. Uh, you know, the the Chinese arguably. Uh, they've been around for as long as history remembers. Uh, the Arabs in some iteration uh, or another have been around for a very long time. Uh, one could argue that the the Indians as well, uh, Indians, not the baseball team, and not the American Indians, the Indians in, in India uh, as well. However, what you'll we'll notice is that uh, they all share commonalities. Number one, they have either tremendous numbers, which would contribute to being around forever, because if you're so big, It's hard to uh, be drowned out. It's hard to have your influence uh, muffled because you're so much, you know, you have so many more people, the population is so much bigger, and thus you'll drown out any voices or any uh, influences that will try to diminish your power. But also, you'll find that there's going to be large amounts of stability. You'll have uh, isolation, like the Chinese and the Indians, they're in isolation, they don't really interact so much. well, Of course they do, but uh, over the course of thousands of years, uh, relatively less encounters with uh, with other cultures and other countries, and they have language and borders and stuff like that. Uh, however, the Jewish people are a nation that is not large a number. Uh, we are we're still very small. We're .02 percent of the population. It's really insignificant, right? One of every five hundred people is, is is Jewish in the world. Uh, and that's number one. And and number two, we've been bouncing around the globe for so long. You know, we start with our forefathers in in Egypt. You get back to Israel, you think things are wonderful. Then, well, no, they're not so wonderful because here comes the Assyrians, and here comes the Babylonians, and here comes the Persians, and here comes the Greeks and all the offshoots of the Greeks and the Macedonians and the, 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 the Ptolemyans and the Seleucids and, of course, the Romans and the Byzantines and the Ottomans and the Arabs, the unforgettable, the Muslims in the seventh century. We and we are bouncing around everywhere. Uh, we go to Europe. We settled down in Spain with a couple hundred years of prosperity. You kicked out. We're kicked out of Spain, kicked out of Portugal, Can of France, kicked out of England, kicked out of Germany uh, different times. Uh, Italy, we had trouble. Turkey, we had trouble. Like we are around this whole place. Yet we maintain our identity as a nation. Not only just being part of a nation, we retain the fact that we are connected to our forefathers and to the mission that they began. We see throughout our history that the conditions for us to dissipate as a nation were in place. We weren't so mighty. We didn't share common language. We certainly didn't share common culture. We were scattered throughout the globe. Yet, remarkably, the prediction that the document that we are trying to examine today, the prediction that it made, indeed came true. All the factors that should have ushered in our extinction were in place. We were small. We were itinerant all around the world. We were hated. You didn't have, what kept us in them as a nation? And we see a prediction that that all came true. Not only that, and this is also fact, we are right now back in Israel. There's six million Jews right now as we speak living in Israel. Uh, that phenomenon is unprecedented throughout Human history, wherein you have a nation that is edged out from its land, and it comes back to reclaim it and reestablish a homeland in that land years after, uh, its, its dispersal. In fact, it happened twice. Uh, it happened once to the Jews, and twice to the Jews, right? We were kicked out by Nebuchad Netzar. To Babylon, and seven years later, we came back and established the second Commonwealth of Israel. We were kicked out by the Romans. Well, certain parts of Israel, we were still allowed to be there. But, uh, progressively, we were kicked out by the Romans the Byzantines from Israel. And of course, there were still some Jews living in Israel for the past 11 years, but the Jewish center of life was elsewhere. And we came back. And we reestablished. It's unbelievable. And this is predicted in to the Torah. We, we see a prediction that the Jewish people will survive. And that indeed is true, in fact. Despite the fact that the conditions for us to have gone extinct were all in place. Now, what makes this very interesting and intriguing is the fact that each one of these conditions that should, under normal circumstances, be a harbinger of our uh, extinction, were also predicted, predicted in the Torah. So it's as if the author of the Torah put themselves into a corner wherein they predicted the impossible. They predicted that we'll survive, despite predicting accurately that we'll be small in number, will be hated, will be scattered, and we'll come back to the land of Israel. So let's go through these one by one here. For example, let's read in the book of Deuteronomy. You will be torn from the land with uh, which you're about to occupy. So Moshe is bringing the Jewish people You know, we're on the doorstep of the land of Israel. We're about to go in. And Moshe is warning them that there's going to come a point in time where you're going to be taken to the land. And God shall scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone whom you and your forefathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no repose, not not a foot of ground to stand upon, for there the Lord Will give you an anguished heart and wasted eyes and a dismayed spirit. This is from Deuteronomy, from Devarim, chapter twenty-eight. Once again, we're predicted predicting this, that this will be scattered throughout the world, as we demonstrated prior. Like this is indeed true. Like you name a place in the world, we were there. We spent time there. There was a hundred years of, of Jewish life, at least that, uh, that you know that we were there. We flourished. We kicked out, and, and the cycle continues. Another verse. This is from Deuteronomy, chapter twenty-nine. And Hashem removed them from upon their soil with anger or with wrath and with great fury and cast them to another land as his very day. So we're about to go in the land of Israel. Moses is telling the Jewish people prediction before these events happened, you are going to be kicked out of the land. And by the way, those people who have doubts as to when this book was written, everyone agrees that the Torah preceded, uh, certainly we have, we have copies of the Torah that are 2300 years old. So clearly these all preceded the second expulsion of the Jewish people from the land of Israel. So you say, you know, maybe it was written afterwards. And now almost everyone agrees that it preceded the first expulsion. But it certainly preceded the second expulsion. So this is fact that this these predictions happened before the events that they describe to have happened. And the question we really have to ask ourselves: is it possible for a human to get so lucky? and to be so foolish, yet so genius at the same time. To be foolish, to paint themselves or to to put themselves into a corner wherein making predictions and standing out on a limb to write that will be eternal nation, despite all the the fact that history may throw us a curveball. But not only that, to accurately predict every curveball that it will throw at us. Uh, Additionally, and I said this uh, prior, we're told, and you shall remain few in number... Whereas you could have become as numerous as the stars of the heaven because you did not obey the law, the voice of the Lord your God. We're told that the Jewish people will be small in number. Indeed, we know from the times of the Romans during the, during during the, the height of of the Roman Empire, the Jewish people numbered about 10% of the Roman Empire. Between, somewhere between 4 and 10 million, depending on, on which count you, you, you believe in. Uh, now we're what, 14 million? Uh, the rate of growth in, po- in sheer numbers and population has been very paltry. Uh, you know, how, how, how is it that, you know, that fact, indeed, is true? And we're told that's, you know, such in the, in, in, the, in the Torah. Again, this is also from Deuteronomy chapter 4. God will scatter you among the nations. Once again, we're predicted that we will uh, be cast throughout every part, every nation in the world. And only a small number will remain among the nations where God shall lead you. We're told that we'll remain few in number and be scattered and will remain eternal. Now, perhaps the reason, perhaps the secret, is that the Jewish people were so clever and were so charismatic and so beloved that we just every place we got, the people respected our privacy. They allowed us to flourish and to grow, and they granted us citizenship and the right to own land, and the right to engage in commerce freely, and the right to own property and 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 be unmolested in any way. Maybe that's the reason why we survived. We had just the easiest two thousand years of living. Uh, but do we know that's not true? We know if you just read any book of of, of Jewish history, just. Have a cursory look at any time, any date in history, and you'll find that the amount of anti-Semitism and pogroms and orders da fe and expulsions and uh, blood libels that we have suffered as a nation is astounding. The amount of little towns and little villages and even big cities that were destroyed and thousands and millions slaughtered, it's unimaginable. Uh, we... That's tiny little nation, right? 0.02% of the world's population suffered the worst genocide in all of human history less than 100 years ago. It's astounding. It, it, in modern times, when we're now, humans are sophisticated and there's progress. We're getting better. We're developing as a species. We're evolving to become higher, you know, you know more sophisticated, less primitive. And that's where we suffered. Our nation suffered the worst genocide in all of human history. In any history, any century you pick out, you'll find horrific acts of Jew hatred, no matter where you are. It could be Poland, it could be Lithuania, it could be Ukraine, it could be certainly Spain and Portugal and wherever, where it is. You, 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 you'll point the place and I'll find, you know, read about the history. Anti-Semitism. You know, what's that gonna do? That's gonna push us to try to lessen it, to mitigate it, to try to find a way to make life more tolerable. Well, what is, how exciting is it to live as a Jew and to be proud of the Jewish heritage and the Jewish mission and destiny when you know that you're being hated because of that? Yet we see the Jewish people are flourishing and surviving and just being able to have the wherewithal to exist and to be around today, despite the fact that the antisemitism itself is also foretold in the Torah. And uh, we read this, we read this, we read this again, but we're going to be cast to other nations and we're not going to have, we will live in constant suspense and, and stand in dread both day and night, never sure of your existence. In the morning you will say, would that it would be evening. In the evening you say, would that it be morning? For the dread of your heart must, uh, that your heart must feel and the sight of your eyes, your eyes must see. We're also told as follows, and this is once again a remarkable description of fact that we know today. Um, the Lord your God, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 30, will undo your captivity and have compassion upon you, and will return and gather you from all the nations amongst whom the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts will be at the utmost parts of heaven from there will the Lord your God gather you, and from there he will fetch you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your forefathers possessed, and you will possess it, and he will do you good and multiply you more than your fathers. We're told in the Torah, in a document that is thousands of years old, that the Jewish people will come back to Israel, and they will be gathered in from all the places that we were scattered to reestablish a homeland there. This event is a historical fact, like we said, and the question you have to ask yourself is how would it be possible for the author, who wrote this minimum 2,500 years ago, to know about events that are in modern times. Um, It's just remarkable. And we talked about Mashiach, right? So I don't want to talk about Mashiach per se here, because we're not looking at those predictions right now, even though this seems to dovetail nicely with the Mashiach predictions. Uh, but it's hard for us to imagine how is it possible for Mashiach to come and rebuild the Jewish temple on Temple Mount. There's a structure, a gleaming gold structure, that has been there since the year 691. It's a long time ago, 1500 years. Now, to, to be clear, it was only covered in gold when King Hussein of Jordan sold one of his houses in London and melted 80 kilos of gold to make it gold. But it's right there, and it's in the spot where the Jewish temple will be rebuilt. For us, it's maybe hard for us to imagine how we're going to do it. And the truth is, you know how we're going to do it? With, probably with a bulldozer. Just come and take it. Uh, how can you get rid of uh, sites that are so old? Well, what happened to the site that was there prior? It was also fairly old. And by the way, what's happening to Islamic sites all across uh, Arabia and Assyria, they're being destroyed by Muslims themselves. But it's hard for us to still imagine that. But if I told you, in 1943, that within five years, the Gentile countries, all the countries of the world that get it together and vote, to re-establish a Jewish homeland in Israel, you would say, I'm smoking something. Really. And we know five years later, even four years later, 1947, the UN Partition Plan, where the UN voted to give Israel a state in what was then called Palestine. Palestine. It's unbelievable. You wouldn't, and if, certainly if we went 150 years ago, where political Zionism was not yet a thing, you wouldn't possibly imagine that there's going to be a grassroots political movement led by people spanning from being very assimilated to being very observant religious Jews who are going to unite together under the cause of coming back to the land of Israel. You wouldn't believe it, but indeed it happened. Indeed, their dream came to fruition. But the point is is that when the Torah makes predictions, we find that it has an uncanny success rate. It's, it's never wrong. It's unbelievable. And yet, even when these predictions are multi-pronged predictions that are each on its own self-contradictory and should rule out the other prediction, logically, yet they all appear in the Torah and they've been there for as long as we can remember. And we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been preserved for a dozen years and they're still there, we haven't just added them in very cleverly <laughs> post-facto, and they're there, and it is remarkable. And to me, you know, we've spent now five hours talking about some of the evidence, but, like, really any one of these things onto their own really is eye-opening. And we have to really consider the possibility that it's true. You know, now, what I'm saying here is is that, like, sometimes there's this notion that it's an unspoken notion, but yeah, of course God exists. Yeah, of course the Torah is true. But it doesn't really affect me. I kind of, I let it be harbored in my mind and not to think about it. But the stage step two of this is that this is real. It's as real as the fact that we're sitting here in this room or watching it online or listening to it online. That's real. And it has ramifications and implications, and it has joy and, and trepidation mixed together. The fact that we know that there is a, a living God that is involved with our lives individually and as a nation, and we can communicate him when we, to him when we talk, we can pray and he listens, like that's, and that's real, like as if I talk to my fellow, I talk to my spouse and my kids, or my colleagues and my coworkers, and they listen to me i could talk to god and he listens to me too like that's kind of taking it to, to the next stage in reality and to me i think like you know maybe the hope is is that after we really examine some of this evidence we look at our relationship with torah and with god in a different light it's not just something yeah i'm a card carrying believer a lot of people are card carrying believers they carry the cards but Does it really affect who they are? Does it impact their behavior? Does it influence the way they prioritize life? Because if you, if God is a fact and the Torah is real, and you don't make it a priority in life, well, that shows that you don't really believe that it's true. Because if it really was true, it would be certainly a priority, but logically it ought to be the priority of your life. Because it's real, and the ramifications are enormous, and my actions are amplified—the meaning behind them. Because, you know, I have to make sure I'm doing what, what what's demanded from me. And that really makes it a little bit uncomfortable. Whoa, 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 whoa! It's nice to have a nice academic discussion. Don't make don't make me force force me to change. That's going a bit too much, right? But logically, we have to realize. That we're trying to, we're, we're being very cold and calculating here. We're just examining what it says. And we're questioning. Like, is it possible to concoct a scenario in which the human's the author? I don't think it is. Okay, so we have a divine author. We have to really examine what the. You know, we find a story with Rabbi Ativa. Rabbi Ativa, he had a method of Torah study that was super annoying. Why? Talmud says. That he would go to his teachers and say, Aleph Zuloma Nihtof. He would ask about every single letter in the Torah. This Aleph, why is it written? Why can it can it say the message without this Aleph? Which is annoying, right? Because you have to like really think about every little minute detail. But every letter is a letter from God. And thus it can't be that it's random. It can't be that like, well, it doesn't really matter like how it's said or how it's phrased. Yeah, obviously it does if it's from God. But to us, on our levels, we have to really examine our behavior, our life, but certainly our priorities. If God exists, like most of us, or I think all of us here believe, and the Torah is true, like I think we've tried to demonstrate using just the contents of the Torah and our own logic to to demonstrate, okay, so what now? And how do we make sure that we're prioritizing our life and living our life uh, to the max. I want to also throw in some other interesting things here. We have uh, the Oral Torah. So the Oral Torah, it's a little bit of a misunderstanding as to how it works. Typically, people think that the written Torah is what Moshe gave us. And then the Oral Torah was something that some rabbis concocted years later, or hundreds of years later, or whatever. Now, the truth is that what Moshe gave us predominantly was the oral Torah. The Moshe, at the end of his life, last week of his life, he's writing Torahs and giving one to each tribe, having a 13th scroll kept in the archives for the whole nation. But over the 40-year period when Moshe is teaching the Jewish people Torah, he's teaching them, you know, what, what is Torah? The Almighty's instructions for life. You know, so what does tefillin look like? And how do you make tefillin? And how do you wear tefillin? And how do you strap tefillin? And what, you know, all those questions. What are the scrolls that go into the tefillin? And how many compartments are there in the tefillin on the head and the tefillin on the arm? That's what he's teaching us. Um, We don't see any complete scrolls till all the way later. Remember, if Moshe gave us scrolls, I don't imagine that Korach would decide to make a coup when he reads that the earth is going to open up and swallow him and his family alive, right? Obviously, the narrative parts of the Torah came later. But the Torah was given, according to Jewish tradition, to the Jewish people, the written Torah, that is, all the way at the end. What was Moshe teaching us? He teaches the oral Torah. So indeed, it's the opposite. We think of the written Torah as being original and the oral Torah as being some sort of interpretation that came afterwards. Indeed, the opposite is is more true chronologically. Moshe gave us the oral Torah, or he gave us the Torah orally, and then at the end of his life, he gives us a written Torah to complement what we already had studied. Uh, incidentally, like I, we think, I'll, I'll say this in a different way to just make it uh, super abundantly clear: we think that the oral Torah is there to service the written Torah. It's the other way around, exactly. The written Torah is there to service the oral Torah. Now, what service does it provide? So this is a little bit of, of, of advanced 201. And the service that it provides is ensuring that there's no mistakes in the oral tradition. So, for example, you open up any page to Talmud and it could have two questions. You could have question number one is, this law that we know, where is its source in the written Torah? Because your law that you have is only... Orally, from your old tradition, is only as good as how well that can fit back into the written Torah. And similarly, we have we have this verse, another question Talbot asks very frequently. We have a verse. Okay, well, let's extrapolate that verse. What's that verse telling us? But the point is that these are complementary. They work together. They're actually both renditions of Torah, one of them in an oral, more fleshed-out format. And another one in a more condensed and encrypted format. That's why the laws in the written Torah are, you can't read them because they're all hidden. They're all, they're all in there, but they're hidden. They're encoded. But I want to look at some things that we find in the oral Torah, which are very interesting that uh, even if, even if we question whether or not this comes from Moses, we find them in our Mishnah, in our Talmud, in the uh, written format of the oral Torah, which is a little confusing. But uh, but we find some interesting things that it says there that we would have to question, how would these people know it uh, when they weren't necessarily scientists, and if they were scientists, how could they have known things with such precision and accuracy when no one else did? Once again, we're working off the premise that, while Jews may be more gifted in the aggregate, but uh, the, the the notion that some Jew or some group of rabbis would have known information uh, 1500 years before scientists knew it randomly that they just happen to be fantastic scientists and they're just unfortunately just studying Torah that is uh, is a little bit preposterous Uh, so for example hemophilia so hemophilia is a disease wherein someone who has it has a problem having blood clots. I think now they have ways to treat it or to ameliorate the severity of, of, of it. But either way, um, the Talmud talks about babies with hemophilia. To have a baby with hemophilia is a problem because male babies who are being circumcised a week after they're being born, uh, they're going to lose some blood. And if they cannot clot or cannot clot sufficiently, they will die. Now, hemophilia is a genetic disease. However, says the Talmud, if the mother has multiple kids dying during their circumcision, then a subsequent child is not circumcised. We know we don't have to give up our lives for every mitzvah. So if a child is going to be, is going to die, God forbid, tragically, by their circumcision, We don't circumcise them. But says the Talmud, if the father has had previous children with hemophilia that died during circumcision, then you don't have to worry about it. But if the mother had had previous children that died because of hemophilia at circumcision, then those children should not be circumcised because they may die. What it's essentially telling us is that the gene that contributes to hemophilia is on the X chromosome. Now, how the rabbis should they be the originators of this halacha? How would they know that thousand years before, fifteen hundred years before genetics was even studied? How how would they know that? Uh, it seems remarkable. If it's, listen, it's from God. If it's from Moshe, the prophet from God, okay, then you have your answer. But we have to question: like, why? How would this law come into you know? Would they just? Amazing at keeping track of all the maybe I don't know I'm saying the point is it, ha- it raises questions, and I think it's interesting. Uh, another law which you find in oral Torah uh, is the halacha of a trefa. A trefa, like non-kosher food is called treif. Trefa is an animal that has uh, has some sort of illness that renders it unfit, unhealthy, and thus treif, non-kosher. Um, it could be anything from punctured lungs to lesions to cancers to all sort of all sorts of maladies, abrasions and sorts that render it unkosher. And you know what happens when they open up an animal that has tons of cancer, and after they just slaughtered it, you know where they deposit it? So they sell it to the non-Jews. That's right. Yeah. My point is is that you know when you're eating kosher food that the animal is healthy. But so the Rambam and the Halacha, the Talmud. Enumerates dozens of various illnesses that render the animal of trefa, thus saying that it's, it's mortally ill, it's gonna die, and therefore it's, it's, it's trefa and it's not kosher. However, the Ramam Gamar points out that if the animal is missing a significant chunk of its liver, it's still kosher because the liver regenerates. Somehow, the Talmud knew that the liver is the one, or maybe this, I think there are a few others, but is one of the internal organs that will on its own regenerate. So even if an animal right now does not have a liver that is big enough to suffice for its continued survival over an extended period of time, but it's enough that it will regenerate, and thus, over time, the liver will get bigger and stronger and will allow for its uh, continuous survival, and thus, it's not a trifle. That's just a remarkable little idea that they knew so long ago, when, from my understanding, this was only found out by the rest of the world, like 1,500 years later, which is pretty interesting. Another example, the exact length of a lunar moon. Uh, of a lunar month. Sorry, um, the Talmud is obsessed with this idea. Um, Jewish law really uh, revolves around the calendar, right? If you don't have a correct calendar, you don't know when your Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Hanukkah, Sukkot, Pesach—all these holidays are. You're really handicapped as a religion, certainly as our religion, which pays, places so much emphasis on holidays. So uh, there's big parts of the Talmud that deal with how do we ensure... Now, we have a problem also. We made our life a little bit more difficult because we actually decided, Torah decided, that we follow a lunar month but a solar year. Now, this is a little confusing, a little inside baseball, because a lunar month is shorter than a solar month. A solar year is the solar year divided by 12... So we end up with 365 days a year, plus every four years, roughly, we add another day. It's kind of simple. It's a little bit more complex than that, but it's fairly simple. We have every year is 365 days plus five hours plus 48 minutes plus 45 or 46 seconds, depends which who you believe, the NASA or the Encyclopedia Britannica. Either way, we'll round it off as a month's friends, right? Fairly simple. You have about a quarter of a year, a quarter of a day added every year. You add every four years of the day, mazel tov. Every hundred years, which is every 25, four years, you don't add a day to make up for the fact that there's 12 minutes missing, but every 400th year, you do add a day. So it all evens out, basically. But that's fairly simple. Now we have, I'm missing the Torah that says that we have to celebrate the holiday of Passover in the spring, That tells us that we have to find a way to use a solar year, however, to balance it with a lunar month. Lunar month, how long is a lunar month? So this is what the Talmud says. A lunar month is 29 days, 12 hours, and then no less than 793 halakim. A chelek is a section of an hour, Wherein they take an hour and divide it not into 60 minutes or to 3600 seconds, rather into 1080, so 1080 halakhim, which means portions of an hour. It says the Talmud that a lunar month is no less than 29 days, 20 and a half days, 20 and a half days, 12 hours, and 793 halakim, which comes up by 44 minutes and 3.3 seconds for those doing the math at home. Now, first of all, how did it get that number? In a time where the uh, astronomy was certainly less sophisticated than it is now, much less rocket scientists, certainly in the uh, schools of Surah and and Pempedisa, where all the rabbis were studying, you know, somehow they knew this number, and indeed this number lives till today. In fact, the calendar that we have till this very day that we use uh, was established in the middle of the 4th century of the Common Era by the Sanhedrin, which was about to be disbanded and under the leadership of Hillel Hillel II, not to be confused with his great-great-great-great-grandfather, Hillel I, who we all know, uh, of standing on one-foot fame. So he was the one who devised a 247 year cycle where he managed to figure out a way to add 91 leap years, 91 years out of 247, where you add another month, and it comes out that you're exactly aligned to the second, wherein you'll always have Pesach in the spring, and you could just do this for the next 150,000 years and you'll be you won't, you won't go awry. Now, that I think is remarkable because the source for the length of a lunar moon, which is the basic or the basis for this calculation, that was sourced from Moshe. That came all the way from Moshe. But even if it didn't come from Moshe, even if we want to question whether Moshe exists, let's assume we want question that. Let's assume we're non-believers, I could point to you where the Talmud says that. You have to explain to me how is it possible that a bunch of very clever, albeit clever, rabbis who did not have a connection and a link to God to get such an accurate, down to the second, the milliseconds, accurate, precise calculation of the length of the lunar moon. Um, to me, you know, this is just, there's a preponderance of evidence Um I'll give me one more, one more example here. Uh, we're told that um, of all the grains that exist in the world, the Talmud points to six grains that have gluten in it. There's only six grains, thus, that are kosher for a matzah and become chametz, because in order to become chametz, you have to be able to rise. Uh, in order to be able to rise, you have to be able, you have to have gluten, because the gluten traps. Uh, the gas of the yeast, and thus it uh, leads to, uh, to rice. And the Talmud goes out on a limb and says that there's five grains, wheat, barley, spelts, oat, and rye, that become hummus. You know what? The Talmud was so confident that you won't find another grain somewhere. You know how many grains we have or how many different kinds of grasses that we have? Nowhere else will you find a grain that has gluten in it. That's just remarkable. How is it possible that, you know, a book written somewhere in the Fertile Crescent, yeah, the Talmud, would know that? If not for the fact that they had some sort of tradition, "back to Moses, back to God." That said, these are the five. I created all the grains. I know that this is all we've got, and you know, what? we haven't found another one. I, I think that you know, just to conclude here, for us, it's it's hard to believe in. The existence of something that's beyond ourselves, that's not playing by the same rules that we are, that's not bound to the laws of physics, something miraculous, something metaphysical. That's something that's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit uh, disruptive, certainly. Um, it's uncomfortable. But I think we have to realize that no matter which avenue we take in faith or in belief or in philosophy, life philosophy, certainly, we're going to have to rely on something that does not play by the rules of physics. You know, let's say we want to reject the idea of God. Let's assume we want to do it. A lot of people do. Does that mean that we are free of relying on anything that's beyond the rules of physics? The answer is no. Because even if you want to contact and develop and promulgate and posit theory, a worldview that obviates the need of a divine creator, you still have to rely on realities that are A, unprovable, and B, inconceivable within the bounds of physics that we have today. I'll give you an example. So you want to believe in Big Bang evolution, right? Those are the two pillars of how to avoid subservience to God. Who terrifying, let's avoid that, Right? Okay, so the Big Bang, where do all those atoms come from? Where does matter come from? A fundamental premise of physics is that you cannot create matter, yet we have matter. So regardless of whether or not we want to believe in God or not, we are relying on something else that we cannot explain and that we cannot quantify being involved in our lives. You know, We talk about evolution, right? So evolution starts from an amoeba. Yeah, single, simple, single-celled organisms. That's simple, right? Certainly compared to us, it is simple. But we're going to take that and let that evolve and evolve and evolve and evolve till we have humans and we have mice and a trillion species, which in itself is a little bit of a leap. But let's assume that that could be done, right? It can't, but let's assume it could. Without it, well, it could if God's there behind the scenes. Or, however. How do we get from inanimate matter into any sort of amoeba or organism? You know, a cell is more complex than anything that humans and all our genius and all our ingenuity and all our engineering have possibly created. If you take all the collected brains and intelligence of all of humanity, not only the ones that are existing today, but the ones that have existed since the time time immemorial, past thousands of years. Billions of minds all working 24-7. We cannot create a single fly. One fly. You can't. And this world has billions of these kinds of things. The whole thing's preposterous, right? To, for it to happen on, on its own. We can't even do one if we try. Certainly it's not going to happen on its own, right? But even the most basic building block of the organisms and species that we have today, a an amoeba, that we can't create on our own, and that cannot happen on its own, and that's even more complex than to take an elephant, take a take a a, a, mo- a mouse and turn them into an elephant, which of course is outrageous, but outrageous without God. But to take inanimate matter and make it animate like that, uh, that's impossible. And science doesn't have a way to explain it, and evolution doesn't explain it. We have to rely on a miracle. The point is is that we are living in a world wherein the possibility to live life and have a system of beliefs that this includes something metaphysical, or something supernatural, or something miraculous, or something beyond the constraints of our world is impossible. You can't live in such a world. The world, the world does not exist. And the question is, are you going to follow the evidence or are you going to follow your innate agitation with the evidence? But the evidence is overwhelming, and I think it uh, indeed should, we should hopefully, you know, hopefully it will aid us in, uh, in trying to find truth in our lives and trying to have a meaningful and happy life. And I thank you all for coming and listening and watching, and I look forward to seeing you guys next time for a little bit more of the same.